If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's podcast, I spoke to the historian and author William Dalrymple about his new book, The Anarchy. The book charts the relentless rise of the East India Company, a London-based trading corporation that became a colonial behemoth. I met William in central London to find out more about how one small company came to dominate the Indian subcontinent. So you've written several books about the history of the Indian subcontinent. What made you want to focus specifically on the East India Company for your latest? So this, I suppose, is my fourth book about the period which I love, which is this unwritten period, really, between the end of the Mughals and the beginning of the Raj. Um, A period known variously as as the... uh, uh, as the twilight, the Mughal twilight, or the Great Anarchy, uh, and uh, the Great Anarchy obviously is the uh, is where the title of this book comes from. And uh, Indian historians, I think, have always concentrated on on golden ages and, and and the golden age of Ashoka, the great Guptas, the great Mughals, uh, and then for Indian historians, the freedom struggle, uh, and for British historians, the Raj, um, and this odd period between the two is the one that I 
always been fascinated with. And this is a great sweep that starts with the time that Shakespeare's writing Hamlet, 1599, and ends with uh, the, the end of the company in 1858. But the real focus is this period when the most bizarre thing happens, when a London corporation takes over the Mughal Empire. But in that period, the East India Company changes from being a normal, large-scale, but normal trading corporation, buying textiles in India and selling them abroad, to being a trading company that's also an imperial power, that by the time the book closes in, in 1803 has an has a army of 260,000, twice the size of the British army. Uh, and in both India and Britain, people have well, particularly in the 19th century, in the age of nationalism, this was rewritten to be a national story. And it was the story of how the British, in inverted commas, conquered India. And for the Indians, it was the story of, of colonial oppression, um, which is followed by a story of liberation. But sudden, if, you, if you take in the fact that the people actually doing the conquest were not the British government operating out of Downing Street or Whitehall, but was a private company owned by shareholders, operating out of one London office block under what's now the Lloyds Building in Leadenhall Street, um, it all looks completely different. And it's a corporate story. It's a story of corporate violence. And it is the story of how um, a group of very ruthless and very determined um, traders, many of whom in the early days of the company were ex-Caribbean privateers, pirates in, in, in modern parlance, uh, literally, the, uh, the the ship, the first British ship uh, that the company sent to uh, India, uh, renamed the Red Dragon, started its its uh, its career as the Scourge of Malice, literally, <laughs> and it was a pirate ship. Um, and a lot of the people who were the initial signed up were pirateers who'd fought under Drake and, and captured Spanish treasure ships and and that sort of stuff. And. When you, once you begin to see this whole story as a corporate story, a story of asset stripping and plunder and a story of corporate violence and corporate irresponsibility, it all begins to look completely different. Generations of schoolchildren used to be brought up in the days when empire was taught, which isn't the case now, um, uh, learning about Clive getting the Diwani from the Mughals. Now, the Diwani doesn't mean anything to anyone either in Britain or in India now, but once you suddenly re realise that all it means is it's the privatisation of tax collecting, um, and that the moguls hand over their tax collecting to a private company. It all looks completely different. Uh, and uh, it suddenly becomes terribly interesting, because you find, for example, you know, the very world's very first case of a corporation trying to bribe a legislature, 1624, only, whatever it is, 25 years after the founding of the company, they're already bribing MPs. Uh, and this is something, you know, new in history. Corporations are new in history. They're Elizabethan invention. Corporations didn't, didn't exist uh, in, in world history. You know, the, the Marco Polo uh, went as a family organisation. The Medici's were a family bank. But Elizabethan England invents this idea of a joint stock corporation. The first one is the Muscovy Company. The second one is the Levant Company. And the third one is the East India Company. And this is a completely new thing. It's, it's completely different from the medieval guilds when you had, for example, pooling of resources by a group of cloth merchants. And, and they, if they want to make an expedition somewhere far flung, they pool their resources. But they're all involved in the business. Where a joint stock corporation is different is that someone who's not involved in the business 
but has some spare cash that they want to invest, rather than investing it in a new building or buying a country house, can invest it in a company and become non-executive shareholders. And that suddenly opens up enormous inflows of money, of capital, uh, which are not... And and so the the equivalent today would be Elon Musk sending off a a spacecraft. And and the reason you need a corporation and why guilds and so on were not not a suitable vehicle for this was you need huge sums of capital. There's massive risks. It takes a long time to recoup your your money, even if the voyage is successful. If you send send six ships off to India, arm them uh, with cannon, fill them with sailors, even if everything is a fantastic success, you're not going to see your money back for a decade. You need large inflows of money. And the people who made up the company were from a whole variety of different backgrounds. A lot of them were privateers and sailors, but there are vintners, leather workers, um, cloth merchants, uh, all the kind of, you know, the full range of London haberdashers. And, and we know the very first, we got the, the list of the very first subscribers to the East India Company. And it's kind of a whole range of, of, of lower middle class London uh, tradesmen. I think that's something your book does really well is it demonstrates how the company essentially mutated beyond recognition over the course of its history from its foundation in 1600 to the 19th century. What were its aims in the very beginning and how did they change over the course of its history? So at the beginning, it's very much a kind of nationalist, or not even nationalist, a London operation um, to take on the Dutch. Because the Dutch have realised that you can, rather than buying your spices, which is what the initial um, trading was all about, rather than buying your spices from uh, Venice or from Cairo, from either Italian middlemen or Arab middlemen, you can now just cut around them by taking a, a ship and, and sailing to Kerala or to the the uh, Indonesia, to Java, uh, and and the islands around there, uh, and buy direct from producers, and and so reduce the, the cost massively. And the Dutch, various Dutch companies had done this in the early uh, 1590s. And then the Dutch sent an expedition to London to try and buy some ships. And all the London merchants said, no way, we're not going to sell these ships to you so that you can then go make profit. We'll do it ourselves. So it was a nationalistic enterprise um, to try and take on the Dutch. And it was only because the Dutch were already there first, had better finance, had better ships and better guns. And the Brits lost their fight with the Dutch, which was a far smaller uh, and newer nation. It was a very humiliating thing for the Brits at that point. And so they leave the trade in Indonesia where the Dutch uh, uh, have beaten them. And they go to the second best, the, the second option, which is textile trade in India. And of course, that's where they make their profits. And so from the about 1620s, the, the English company is focused on, on, on textiles and they're importing chintzes and cottons uh, from the east coast of India and bring it back here. And it's a huge business. Uh, it's a massive business. India is producing spectacular sums of uh, of the finest textiles in the world, and and flooding markets very far from uh, uh, from India. I mean, Mexico, for example, has the equivalent of a sort of textile crisis in the 17th century because so many Indian textiles are reaching Mexico via Portugal uh, and Spain, and the Brits just jump on board that. And in the course of the 18th century, they expand massively, making huge profits. And the company goes from being a small, out-of-its-league competitor of the Dutch big boys to being the major player, the biggest, most successful, most sophisticated capitalist organisation in the world. 
And so when these voyages began, what was happening in India at the time? When the East India Company arrived in India, what did they find there? When the East India Company arrive in India, they are arriving in the single richest empire in the world. India at that point controls a quarter of world manufacturers. Britain, in comparison, creates about 3%. And uh, the political form of India at this point is is dominated by the Mughal Empire, which is this incredibly well-run, sophisticated, rich empire. And the Brits are these sort of slightly crude characters and codpieces stumbling around, while the Mughals are these gorgeous sort of figures in silks. And Sir Thomas Rowe, the first embassy, first ambassador, describes Jahangir as literally fettered in gold. He was chained in gold, uh, hung with diamonds. And the Brits are dazzled. They've never seen anything like this. These people are so rich. They're so sophisticated. Uh, But gradually, the the Mughal Empire begins to collapse. Uh, and it sh- and in about 1739, after the Persian warlord, Nadir Shah, has come to stay and smashed up the Mughals and taken from Delhi all the loot in the treasury, including the Kohinoor, the Peacock Throne, everything the Mughals have looted themselves from India over, over six generations is taken by the Persians and taken down to, uh, to Herat. And at that moment, the Mughal Empire shatters and fragments into lots of little regional units. And the company realises that it can hoover up these units. It wasn't able to do anything against the, the Mughals. And there's, an, there's a very pathetic attempt in the 1630s by a man called Sir Joshua Child, who'd started off by supplying beer to the, the, the Navy in Portsmouth, grown to run the East India Company, and doesn't realise what he's taking on. He attacks Aurangzeb's India at the peak of the Mughal Empire, and these British landing parties are just massacred. But that's the 1630s. By the 1730s, there's been a century of very intense war in Europe. And then by in the 1740s and 1750s, it continues. And there's a military revolution which takes place within Europe. And you have the beginning of the um, file-firing infantry, uh, mobile artillery with, uh, with canister and grape shot. Um, the, the the bayonet and the musket replaces the pike, and you have the whole military fiscal state rising up as a the state finds ways of paying for these expensive new armies by infiltrating deeper and deeper into society and, and taxing it more successfully and, and, and gaining control over the state. Uh, and this creates modes of warfare originally designed by Frederick the Great and the Prussians, which, when exported to India, suddenly changes the balance of power. And not just the Brits, but also the French who are there, find that they they have the ability to either themselves directly intervene in Indian politics and take over states, or that they can effectively act as, as highly paid mercenaries and being paid not just in cash, but in chunks of territory. So beginning in the 1740s in the Carnatic Wars, these trading companies begin to transform into military units. They remain trading companies. They're still buying and selling textiles. They're still uh, bringing bullion out from, from, from London, buying huge quantities of textile, which they then export. But at the same time, they're becoming mercenary units with this, with this new type of warfare, this infantry. They learn they can train up Indian troops, sepoys, very successfully, they can import and build their 
uh, mobile horse artillery that's the equal of, the, the, of that being used by Frederick the Great. And with this new technology, they can just take on any Indian army, even though they're maybe 100, 150,000 men on horseback. A small unit of, of 10,000 sepoys or 5,000 sepoys can, uh, using this new technology can, can, can walk through any Indian battlefield. And it just takes 50 years for the Brits to, to, uh, uh, to, to, to take advantage of this. And it's, and it's the company, not the government, that does it. It's the, it's, it's the company. And a lot of it comes through rivalry with the French. The French are there as well. The, the Compagnie des Andes uh, is, is a big force out of uh, Pondicherry. And uh, they have a base in Bengal, Chandanagar. And throughout this period, you've got the succession of conflicts between France and Britain, the War of the Austrian Succession, the Seven Year War, and so on, then Napoleon. And every time war breaks out, the crown, partly because so many MPs own shares in the East India Company, about a quarter of MPs own shares in the East India Company, so they don't want to lose their own investment. So they're always voting t- for sending out fleets to look after the company. So while Calcutta, Bombay, and Madras are not owned by the Crown, they're owned by the company. British Navy fleets paid for by British taxpayers, paid for by the Crown, are being sent out to look after these private British trading stations. And then again, largely because so many of the MPs are shareholders, they vote that when, that when the British army in 1756 defeats both the French and Chandanagar and Siraj Adal and Nawab of Bengal, you know, naturally you would have thought those winnings should go back to the crown since it was crown troops which, which, which won these. But it doesn't happen. It goes back into the property of the private company. So you have this very corrupt nexus whereby shareholder MPs are voting for measures which, uh, which line their own pockets and those of the shareholders. And, and what you're finding is that already at this stage, you have what obviously is the case today with so many corporations, that the interest of the corporation becomes the interest of the state. And you get corporate lobbying, very powerful uh, corporate lobbying with, with large sums of money being expended to make the state intervene on behalf of the shareholder. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... One of the most extraordinary things at the moment is the fact that the British do not learn their imperial history. This isn't just a matter of school curriculums. Um, If you go to the great British museums, the story of our imperial past has been edited out. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. 
talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You describe the East India Company as dangerously unregulated, as you were speaking then about it being very corrupt. Um, did it ever threaten to undermine the interests of the British state? It definitely competes with the British state at various points. I mean, the company is very happy to play it both ways. When it's under threat from the French, it's a, Briti- it's a British organisation that needs protecting by the government. But once the war is won and land has been conquered, suddenly the company says, this is ours, <laughs> not, not yours, hands off. And this, of course, is a debate which, which goes on throughout the 18th and the early 19th century. Who should be, who should be running this colony? Because... Uh, much of the initial colonization of America, too, had taken place under a corporate banner. So there was large, um, for example, the Rhode Island Company, the Hudson Bay Company. Uh, These are private shareholder-owned joint stock companies, uh, which were involved in the early colonization of of America. And yet, obviously, America went a different route. America ended up being a crown colony and was lost as a crown colony to the independents, to the patriots, uh, uh, after Yorktown and after the victory of Washington. But India remains the property of this private company, bizarrely understanding that something morally very dubious is going on, begins to dawn on the Brits quite suddenly in 1772. 1770, there's a massive famine in Bengal, which up to then had been the breadbasket of India. And it, it, and it has literally been asset stripped by the company. And even during the famine, sepoys are sent out to keep tax, revenue taxes up to their normal standards. So people, even if they're starving, have to sell their children or their livestock or their houses in order to pay the taxes which the company demands. And and not one penny is remitted because of the famine. Uh, and, and the company keeps its profits right up, but at the cost of one-fifth of all Bengalis dying of famine. Uh, and entirely unnecessary. Elsewhere in India, there's a famine too, because, it, you know, the, there's a drought. But uh, elsewhere, rulers intervene to provide famine relief works. They, they provide, uh, you know, soup kitchens and, uh, and relief measures. The company does nothing. It just watches these people starve. And, and, you're, and you see for the first time in world history this thing that we're familiar with today of, in a sense, the sheer heartlessness of a corporation. If there's nothing, you know, it, it operates for its shareholders' profit. That's what it's there for. And it's not there to win votes or to help people or to... Uh, uh, be understanding when things have gone wrong. Um, and it's it's the first example in world history of the ruthlessness of corporations and the reach of corporations and the power of corporations. And this is the period when you see the maximum corporate violence in world history. A corporation has an army of 260,000 people that uses it 
to topple kings, to conquer land, uh, to uh, enforce uh, the growth of certain products that it wants to grow or the, uh, or the uh, uh, expulsion of people from certain areas because it wants to use it for something else, land for something else. Uh, and many of the issues that are, are talked about when we talk about the dangers of, of, of unregulated corporations today are rearing their heads very dramatically for the first time in, in the history of the East India Company. And then, in this, you know, the East India Company, like so, so many other corporations, can appear to be a giant at one moment and can be extremely weak at a moment, like Lehman Brothers. Uh, so when there is this massive famine, in 1770, 71, 1772. Uh, the profits of the company go off the cliff, the share, the share price is wiped out, and the company finds itself a million pounds in debt. And it has to go cap in hand to the Bank of England. And the Bank of England can't pay it out because it's such a massive scale of money. There is no money in, in the Bank of England that can, that can manage the scale. So, you know, and, and Burke in Parliament is saying this, this company, like a viper at the breast, uh, will, will kill the country which nurtured it. Um, and he predicts that it can sink the entire British economy in the same way as we've seen in our time with what happened in Iceland with the collapse of those banks when the whole Icelandic economy just went, disappeared in, uh, beneath the roof. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating, it's an absolutely fascinating precursor because this isn't just a company, it's the most powerful company. It's the first big multinational corporation and it's global in its spread. It's growing Quite soon, it's growing opium in India, selling illegally to China. It becomes a narco trader, the biggest narco trader in history. Illegally, it imports opium to China to buy Chinese tea. Where's the Chinese tea sold? America. What happens? The Boston Tea Party. It's East India Company tea, which is being unloaded because, it's, because again, Parliament has intervened to try and save the company, partly because so many of its parliamentarians and shareholders. And, uh, and, and the American colonists don't want to pay uh, over, the, over the odds prices for their tea. Uh, and, and that's what begins the American Revolution. So it's global in its reach. And, it, and, and although it's a, it's a history which um, has been written many times from a nationalist perspective, when you begin to see it as a corporate story, it's quite different. And um, when we discuss it like that, the charge sheet against um, the East India Company seems very, very long. Um, do you think it was this profit-driven ruthlessness that really was the key ingredient to the company's unstoppable rise? The company succeeds really for two reasons. One is a simple military thing, or two or three things, reasons. In simple military terms, it has technology, which most Indian powers at the beginning certainly don't get. The Indian powers catch up later. Um, but initially, no one in India knows what to do militarily against this new form of warfare uh, that can just make mincemeat of vast armies of heavy cavalry. Um, but it also has a economic strength because the company understands finance and it quickly finds allies among Indian financiers. And at the crucial moments when the company is under threat, it is saved by being able to give, take massive loans from Indian financiers who know that the company, although it's you know ruthless and predatory in a whole variety of ways, does respect basic business law. It respects the right of property. 
uh, it, it respects, uh, if you're a merchant living in Calcutta, you're not going to arbitrarily just get your house taken away. You, you know, you can go to court and you can fight for your, you know, you can show the, 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 your legal deeds to that house and you can keep it. Uh, it, it will enforce your right to um, have repayment of debts that you've issued. So Indian merchants speak the same language as the corporation speech, as opposed to, for example, the warlords like the Marathas who are running around central India, who are, you know, um, today they're the, the poster boys of Indian nationalism. But, they, you know, if, the, if a merchant lends to a Maratha war leader, he might beg and plead for his money back, but he won't ultimately have any guarantee that he'll get it. If um, uh, uh, an Indian banker makes a deal with the East India Company, he can enforce it legally by law. And so from a very early point, you get the company supported by the rich Indian merchant families, the, the Jagat Sets, who are these incredibly wealthy uh, Marwari merchants who rem- have, de- have developed credit mechanisms for remitting the regional um, uh, revenue from distant parts of India like Bengal to Delhi, to the Mughal Emperor, and in the process taken a cut uh, and grown, I mean, a- as rich and as influential as the Rothschilds were at the same time in 18th century Europe. Um, and so there is collaboration, active and enthusiastic collaboration by uh, the financial and banking sectors in India. Um, and in the end, it's that joint thing. It's, 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 it's having the military edge plus having the money to pay for it consistently, which always keeps the, the company ahead. Can the legacy of the East India Company still be felt on the Indian subcontinent today? No, I mean, it, it's there if you look for it physically. The ruins are there, you know, old cannon lying around and old forts are there. Um, but in the 19th century, both in Britain and in India, this history got rewritten as a nationalist narrative. It was India against Britain uh, on both sides. And, you know, for Britain, it was a story of imperial triumph. For, for, for India, it was a story of oppression and then ultimately um, vindicated by the freedom struggle. Uh, and the company has been forgotten. Uh, and in a sense, what this book is aiming to do is to, is, is to make it again a, a corporate story, a story of, of, of one rogue corporation and, and how dangerous a big international corporation can be if unregulated. How do you think that we should reflect on the East India Company's role in world history? I think we should, first of all, just remember it. One of the most extraordinary things at the moment is the fact that the British do not learn their imperial history. This isn't just a matter of school curriculums. Um, If you go to the great British museums, the story of our imperial past has been edited out. For example, probably the most iconic picture of of 19th century empire was the the retreat from Kabul, that famous picture of of, of, of Dr. Bryden on his horse riding into Kandahar, the one survivor from the retreat from Kabul. Now, that picture was was one of the most famous pictures in the Tate. It's still very, very famous. You'll see it in a million, you know, instantly recognisable image, taken down off the walls of the Tate in the 1960s and sent off to a, a minor regimental museum in Somerset. Uh, and that has been the British response to empire. When we lost the empire, we lost the interest in telling the story. Uh, and it's very important we do understand it. It's very important that we understand also uh, the many very negative things about the empire and the reasons why so many people in so many parts of the world distrust us or actually dislike us. Um, 
And the fact that we don't teach this history and remember it in a rosy haze of nostalgia of Merchant Ivory movies, whereby the Raj was all about handsome Maharajas and similar tea parties and smiling elephants and parasols and lady in bonnets um, doing croquet on the lawns of a hill station, means that when the British deal with countries like India, they're constantly wrong-footed. Our diplomats, our our MPs, our politicians um, don't understand how they look. Of course, Indians don't look at at all like that. They they regard us as imperial looters and plunderers who who, uh, looted their country, exported the wealth, stole their national treasures and put them in the British Museum. And they're much more angry about it now than they were, oddly enough, sort of 40 or 50 years ago. Such was the effectiveness of British imperial propaganda that we brought civilizations, we built the railways, we introduced tea, we introduced cricket and parliamentary democracy, that the, the, the generation of freedom fighters who I first met when I went to India as a, as a, as a fresh out of university in 1984, they were still there. And they might rage and rant against the Raj, but they would you know, do it while serving you either tea with Marmite or, uh, or you know, gin and tonic. That's all past now. And we're wrong-footed because we don't understand our history. We don't know. People look at the Belgians in the Congo and the Nazis in Southwest Africa, sorry, the Germans in Southwest Africa, sorry. And um, the history that's taught in our schools remembers, you know, we were the ones fighting racism. We were the ones who opposed the ideology based on on race. And, And that we were the heroes of the story. India remembers things very, very differently. They remember, you know, we went there, we looted a country and turned what was the richest country in the world into a third world basket case. And it's taken 70 years, in their view, for India to recover now. And this year, India, the Indian economy has, has, has surpassed that of Britain for the first time. But when we went there, as I said at the beginning, you know, they were 40% of world manufacture and we were three. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and that was not because India just fell behind. It's because we, India was thrown under the bus. Um, we have spoken about this, but I wonder whether just to nail it down as a con- concluding point, um, what lessons do you think this story holds about the relationship between big business and political or global power? Well, it is an examination of that uh, relationship. What is the relationship of, of big business and political power? As we all know, big corporations have lobbying groups. This is not a modern thing. The, the company was was held up in 1624 for the first time for, for, for lobbying illegally and giving bribes to parliamentarians. Uh, and uh, this is a parable of how violent, how ruthless, and how exploitative and extractive an unregulated company can be, a powerful corporation. Uh, in the end, in 1858, it is the nation state that triumphs over the corporation. When the, when the company screws up so badly that the Indian mutiny, as we call it, the first war of independence, as it's known in India, breaks out, a million die in, 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 uh, in, in the warfare that follows. And India is left a, a smoking ruin. And this is the point at which finally Parliament says, right, enough. And it nationalises the East India Company. The East, the East India Company Navy is disbanded. The East India Company Army is absorbed into the British Army. And in the same place that Shah Alam, the Mughal Emperor, handed over the Diwani, the tax collecting rights in, in 1765, which was Allahabad Fort, Lord Canning, a century later in 1858, announces the, uh, the uh, 
end of the East India Company, the abolition of the East India Company, and uh, the absorption of its holdings into the British crown. But the, the fact that as late as the 19th century, when everyone in Britain knows that obviously there's no way to govern a colony, to have it run by a private corporation out of a, out of a boardroom in 6,000 miles away, um, with no requirement to look after the people, the land, the long-term well-being. Uh, I mean, clearly, it's no way to run any country. And yet, you know, it, why does it remain under the company? It remains under the company because so many people are making such a massive profit from it. Uh, so I think it's a very real, uh, you know, in an in a, in a era when uh, the world is now being run by a corporate mogul out of the White House, uh, uh, this has never, you know, this, the history of the Sindhi company has never been more timely. It's, it's, I think, you know, the, the way that uh, a corporation can dominate the state, can conquer a state, and can enslave a people, um, this is a story that needs to be heard. That was William Dalrymple. William's book, The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company, is out now, published by Bloomsbury. You can read my interview with William in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now, and also includes features on William the Conqueror, Beowulf, the Falklands War, and escaping from East Berlin. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in again on Thursday, when Peter Hennessy will be discussing his new book on Britain in the 1960s. <laughs>